going to start off today's Snap Judgment Bad Medicine episode with Greg Stone. See, Greg Stone, he reached a point in his life where he had to make some hard decisions. And his mama knew just what he should do. Snap Judgment. I remember being in the interview and them saying that, like, this job has a lot to do with being direct in language. And I asked, is this hourly or is this salary? And he said, do you mean salary? And I said, yes. And he laughed thinking, ah, this guy's got a sense of humor, not realizing I was already too dumb for this job. Uh, my job was to go in with the doctors. Uh, I would have to document all the things that patients said so that if everything ever came back in, like, court, they wouldn't get sued. So it was a job strictly based on being very meticulous with note-taking. The first day on the job, they call a code on a patient, which meant the patient was, you know, was going to cardiac arrest. So it's all hands on deck. The doc grabs one of the sims. We were called sims. Grabs one of the sims and then says, Greg, you come too. We both went, and he's just calling out what, you know, the things I'm supposed to be writing down. You know, 20 cc's of whatever medication. Um, We're starting compressions, started at this time. So we leave the room, and the doctor looks at me, and he says, so what do you have written down? And I showed him, and then he pulls the other sim aside, and he goes, what do you have written down? And I had, like, two paragraphs. I mean, I couldn't even read my handwriting. Then, you know, the other sim had, you know, like a Bible written And he said, what's the difference between you two? And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know how she got all that. This is like my first day. And he was like, not good enough. Not good enough. Don't come with any of my patients. I just sat in the break room for, I swear to God, eight hours. And I just ate my lunch. I just tried to, I was trying to study. I was trying to get better at the job I was supposed to do. I was reading other people's notes. I was realizing that I was like, I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not smart enough to do this job that just normal people are doing. Every day uh, in the clinical information management world was a nightmare. I would take these notes, and I would be working hard at this. I'd be like nose to the grindstone, really listening. And then I would just come back, and then, you know, I would look, okay, here are these notes. I work really hard on this one. And then the doctor would go, okay, it was a man, not a woman. We gave them Tylenol. Not morphine. I'd be sitting at my desk running my notes, and I would just hear these patients screaming or yelling, and I should probably go see what's going on. So I'd walk in, and then it would say, Aha, why won't someone bring me a pillow? Because the nurses are too busy. So like, well, I can get you a pillow. So then I would grab them a pillow, and then they would go, Sweetie, you're the best. And I would go, I'm the best, you're the best. And then I would leave. just go back to my notes and um, then I'd hear someone else scream and then I'm like up and then I'd run over and someone, you know, they'd be like, well, you know, I want some Jello," and I'd bring them some Jello, and then the doctor would come back and be like, where's my notes? And I'd be like, eh, I, I don't know and I'd like try to type them real fast, you know. They kept me on but they kept just saying he'll get better, he'll get better and I never really got better. It was like a slow day and then the doc he called me and he said, um, hey, uh, we need to talk. 
and he brings me into the office. And uh, he was the head of the ER. I love this guy. He was one of the best doctors. He was really, he was someone I really looked up to and wanted to prove that I can do this job to. So I remember sitting down and he was like, you know, you're not really good at this job. And I was like, I know, I know. And he's like, and you know, we really like you. And I was like, I know, I, um, I know you like me. I, I really appreciate that. And he's like, and we really tried. And I go, yeah. And he's like, we, we just can't have you here. If you're going to make these kind of mistakes, you know, our, our, our jobs, our careers could be on the line. So I'm sorry, but we're going to let you go. So I remember I reached down in my pocket and I pulled out my red glasses and I put them on and I just started to walk towards the door and he stops me. And he goes, Greg. And I was like, what? He was like, you wear red glasses? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And he was like, because we've been getting letters saying that the doctor with the red glasses really took his time with me. The doctor with the red glasses is really you know, cared about my care. And I, we just kept saying, who the hell is this guy with the red glasses? We don't know what these crazy people are talking about. And he's like, and it turned out, he was like, well, it's you. You're the guy with the red glasses? And he's like, you've been talking to patients? And I'm like, yeah, my my desk is over there. They scream, I walk in. And he was like, our patient satisfaction scores are through the roof. And we didn't know why. We don't have to fire you. And his face lit up. We're going to create you a job where you just do that. And I was like, so I don't have to take notes anymore? He was like, no! Like, he ripped him in half, like, threw him in the air, like, comically. And he was like, you don't have to do it! You know, I walked in being like, well, this is the end of that. And then I walked out with a promotion, a better job, and a raise. The new job was patient satisfaction coordinator. Giving pillows, bringing lunches, talking to people, and, and make sure that they were happy. And I would watch these doctors. A lot of them don't have bedside manner. So, you know, weird, uncomfortable nerds who would just be quick and curt and just say, all right, we're taking a CAT scan, and they'd leave. And then I would just see the patient like, what's CAT scan? And I'd stay in for a few seconds and go, a CAT scan is, uh, it's, a, it's an X-ray, but it's a 360-degree X-ray. Uh, I'm going to bring you a drink. You're going to drink that in a half hour. I'll come back. The guy named over there is Ken. He's a nice guy. He's going to take care of you. And... Patients found that to be, like, they loved it because no one would take the time to explain to them what's actually happening. Now I'm all of a sudden, I'm walking out of rooms, I'm shooting people with guns, I'm like, Jerry, Larry, Dave, hey! I'm wheeling wheelchairs, and people are laughing. I mean, I was like the mayor of the ER. One of my favorites, um... Was the guy will say Jerry, and I remember walking into this patient, uh, this room, room 19, and I see this guy, and he's tied up. They have him tied uh, to the bed, and I go, "Hey, you know, how you doing?" And uh, he was just like, "I don't know why they have me tied here," and I was like, "Well, let me find out." I'm saying, "You all right?" And he was like, "I'm not all right. I am being held against my will." So I walk over to the head nurse and I was like, hey, what's up with, uh, what's up with Jerry? Why is he all tied up? And she was like, you can just see her face. She was drained. She was battered. And she was like, I can't with him. 
anymore. And as she's going on, I hear a crash. Then I hear Jerry's roommate screaming, Go to bed, Jerry! Go to bed! So I go in, and not only has Jerry gotten out of his binds, but he is now butt naked, standing in front of his roommate's bed, dancing. Just standing in place, dancing. Now this guy, the nurse just comes in, she goes, what is he doing? He can't be dancing. He has a broken hip. You gotta put him back. So I go to grab him. Also, he's wet. I don't know why. He was just all wet. I don't know how he got wet, but he was drenched. I'm trying to grab him. He's slippery. I grab him from behind. He kicks off the bed. We fall on the ground. Now I have a naked man on top of me dancing and he's just won't stop and i mean his balls are everywhere security runs in the nurses run in we all grab him and uh we put him on the bed and they start tying him up i remember seeing his face and him being like i don't know why you're doing this all i want to do is dance One day, this guy comes in. He was a big guy. He looked like uh, Fresh Prince's dad, Philip Banks. Uh, he he came in with his kid. He was holding his hand, and they were walking in together. I look at him. I go, hey, how you doing? You know, we're bringing you over to your room. And he goes, oh, I could just do me a favor. Can you bring my son into the, you know, we had like a private waiting room. Just hang out with him. Uh, I don't really want him to be in there with me. And I was like, sure. And uh, I bring him in to the little room, and I just sat, and I'm, you know, you know, just having a little time and doing my stupid little kid jokes. And um, not even three minutes later, code red, room three, which means all hands on deck. They pulled the curtain closed. They didn't want people watching what's going on in there. They, you know, he had a massive heart attack and he just died right on the spot. And um, there I am with this man's kid. And I don't know what to do with them. Uh, I, uh, the nurse, I think, had told me that they were calling the patient's brother, who was a kid's uncle, to come pick him up. So me and this little kid were just watching SpongeBob, and I'm in my head knowing that in the next few minutes, the doctor's going to come in and essentially ruin this kid's life. The doctor comes in, and they told the uncle first. And the uncle comes into the room with me, and you can see he's just, you know, broken. And he just goes, I think he just said, Daddy's dead. He didn't know how to say it, so he just yelled, Daddy's dead to this kid. The doctor's there, and they're trying to console the uncle, and I just sat with this kid, and he cried. And I, then the uncle sat with me, and we all cried. And then the doctor left because the doctor has to do doctor things. But I couldn't leave them. This uncle, I think, is now raising this. He's now going to raise this kid. And he's like, I don't know how to be a dad. And I'm like, no one knows how to be a dad. Are you crazy? And he would kind of laugh a little bit and then he would cry. And then I think I was in there with him for like, for like three hours. And um, I remember walking out and the nurse looks at me and she goes, uh, what the hell's wrong with you? 
And I was like, what? And she was like, you can't be doing that. You can't just do this every day. You can't cry every single day. And, uh, you know, she was like, these people are going to die. These lizards are going to die. And she called like old people lizards, which is like a classic thing. And she was like, you laugh or you cry and you cry too much. You need to start laughing. You need to start, you know, letting this wound become a scab and then a scar and then become calloused. I said, I don't want to be that person. Now, it's a very special person that can do that, but it is not me. You know, you would talk to these nurses who were just the sweetest, most caring people. When someone would die, they'd be like, yeah, I didn't think that was going to take that long. Jeez, let's go to lunch. You know, these nurses and doctors have to develop this thick skin because it's the only way to do your job. You know, imagine you, your ambulance pulled up to a room full of crying nurses and doctors. No one would get better. Everyone would die. I would just sit with every patient and everything. Anytime someone would die, I'd cry. My heart was broken every day in that place. There was one patient who came in. Uh, he was young. He was 57 years old, and he had uh, end-stage lung cancer. And he had never smoked a day in his life. Larry was this guy, and he had a really weird sense of humor. Uh, I remember one of the things I think I said was I came in with a wheelchair to bring him to x-ray. And I was like, uh, I was like, you ready for your limousine? And he was like, yeah, what else am I doing? I'm dying. I'm not going anywhere. And I remember being like, yikes, man. Like, jeez. And he was like, ha ha, gotcha. Like, he liked really dark things to get a rise out of people. So I would just constantly go back to him and, and we would talk and we had great talks. Uh, and then I always ask patients, what's the thing you're the most proud of? Because that's always how you get them talking about things they're happy about. Like you just see it bring the joy back to them. So I ask him, I go, uh, hey man, uh, what's the thing you're the most proud of? And he goes, well, I'm 57 and I've never been with a kid sexually. And I remember going, ha, like, this guy's dying. So he's got jokes. I'll laugh at his jokes. It's a weird joke. He was doing what I thought was a bit. And then it was almost as if the room went dark. It was like, in my memory, the lights got dim and he got serious. And he went, no, you don't understand. And I was like, what? And he was like, uh, I've been attracted to children my entire life and I've never done anything and uh, I froze I don't know how to respond to that because it's like well I've you know does that make him a bad person or whatever and I start asking about him like well what do you mean you know we'll talk about it and he says I don't talk about this I don't tell anybody this but when I was young he said, I started getting these feelings. He said, so I told my dad. Uh, his dad broke his nose, uh, told his family. His family ostracized him. He moved from California to a one-bedroom in Patterson. Uh, and I remember he told me, he said he, he didn't know what to do. He couldn't go to meetings for pedophiles because he didn't know if they existed. He was afraid to check online. So he was going to like alcoholic meetings and trying to just find a way 
to get through this. He said he wouldn't drink or smoke or do anything because he was afraid it would, you know, it would take down his defenses. And he essentially said he lived secluded to himself, afraid of what he could become. And then he goes on to explain to me that he was happy to die. And that was weird to um, to have someone say that. You're like, man, this guy's been fighting this his whole life. And the day where I was off is when he died. And I remember going up to hospice and then trucking the nurse, being like, hey, where is he? And her being like, oh, that pedophile? He's gone, thank God. And I remember being furious. I mean, I just remember being furious, like, you. He clearly tried to just confide in someone else, and she wouldn't get past the first, you know, sentence he said, I guess. And I was furious at her, and I was sad, but then I was also relieved. I was relieved because I knew that he had now moved on. I feel all these things, and I hear this voice going, Greg, we need you downstairs. So I push those feelings aside, and I head back to work. Big thanks to Greg Stone. Greg is a comedian now, an actual comedian. Living in New York, go see Greg Thank Me Later. Find out more details about Greg on our website, snapjudgment.org. Original sound design was by Leon Morimoto, and that piece was produced by Liz Mack.